Hello and welcome back to Idea of Evil. This is episode four of Idea of Evil, the podcast about Berserk, the comic book, the hit comic book, the ones the kids can't get enough of. It's called the the BCU. That's the Berserk Cinematic Universe. I am Reed McCarter, uh, emerging from the bowels of hell, stinky of sulfur. I am joined by Gareth Damian Martin, who has descended from heaven with flowers and sunshine. Hi. That's me. Around you. How is it up there? Um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's it's full of golden-haired Griffith idols glimmering well, in the sun. Yeah, it's really something. Um, well, down here in hell, where, where I live, which is uh, Ontario, um, we're, we're talking about Berserk, where things are not always uh lovely and idyllic they're full of blood and literally guts we are guts we are picking up where we left off we are in uh going through volume five uh and seven uh sort of toward into seven the numbering remains confusing uh chapters are now consistent so we're doing chapter seven to 22 on this episode um starting where we left off last time which is in the extended flashback that we're going to continue staying in for a few more episodes golden age gareth what's a golden age (laughs) and that's that's the primary question that berserk the golden age asked no it's really not um (laughs) yeah this well this particular golden age um i'm not really sure but there's we have very golden moments at the beginning of of um chapter five i hope you like that segue um that was, the, was really good we have a, a golden moment with with griffith and guts coming up here because we which we could have we could have probably integrated into the previous episode but for you good listener or listeners if there's more than one of you um is the 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 kind of hanging out scene between um guts and griffith and the band of the hawk it's full of camaraderie it's very chill for a berserk sequence um but it also has uh guts and griffith having a water fight is the primary feature and also then a repeated kind of joke about guts falling in water and the whole thing tonally is really quite um it's really quite knockabout and fun and strange i think it's maybe the first point in the whole of berserk that there is this kind of like weird knockabout comedy scene um maybe there's some stuff with park earlier i guess but yeah not quite in this tone um yeah, this is yeah they're all having a good time here yeah and we've still got the like overriding um homosocial experience of hanging out with griffith um where he's just naked and, and guts is is staring up at him sunlit while Griffith says, I will get my own kingdom because you belong to me. So, yeah, it's the same vibes. But we were speaking last time a little bit about this kind of Guts-Griffith relationship. And I wanted to dig into it a bit more. So I cheated a bit between podcast episodes and I read an interview with Miura. So now I know the truth. Um, mm. Well, and... let's just shut it down. Just read the interview. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, but the interesting thing that, that came up in this interview... Um, was that he was specifically like he's so so berserk was is um 
a seinen manga. That means as in it was a manga which was in seinen magazines, which if you don't know manga tends to be distributed in relation to its audience. And seinen manga is manga for boys. Um, and uh, shoujo manga is what would usually be considered manga for girls in in Japan, and certainly in the like in the nineties. And shoujo magazines were specifically aimed for girls. And a lot of shoujo manga is focused on male male relationships um, and kind of emotions with a capital E and things like that. And it's interesting. The reason I bring this up is is Miura specifically talks about how in his head. Um, he was as much inspired by shoujo manga as he was by seinen manga, thinking like he was kind of, he talks about the the shadow of the fist of the North Star, the kind of like massive, I think it's the best-selling manga series of all time at this point, um, but just, which is just like massive muscly men punching each other incredibly hard uh, in like incredible looking action sequences. Um, and he mentions that, but he also mentions the Rose of Versailles, which is like a French Revolution shoujo manga um, by Ryoko Ikeda. That's like one of the kind of seminal um, shoujo mangas, which is about kind of relationships within the French Revolution and political relationships. And it's a historical drama and it's kind of courtroom dramas and um, follows the lives of two women, the, who Marie Antoinette and... Uh, and... Uh, who? somebody else whose name I've forgotten. But anyway, hmm. the reason I bring this all up as context is I think there's something really interesting about the way that the Guts and Griffith relationship might be kind of one of the hinge points on which this, on which Berserk sits between Shoujo and, um, and Seinen manga. And specifically in the way in which it has this kind of, again, like, you know, this kind of implication that, um, that Griffith is is gay or bi, and this kind of weird like sense of uh, power relating to sexuality, to male sexuality, this kind of slight fear of queerness in male sexuality. But then here, especially in these scenes, this really like seemingly kind of positive portrayal of this kind of friendship between mostly group a group of men that also includes Casca, um which we'll get to later i think mm -hmm. the, the implications of that um but yeah there's this kind of knockabout thing and then the one last like tip bit that i wanted to share from that interview was that miura himself said that you know we've previously talked about him basing um his this relationship on his high school friends um is that he thinks of himself as pippin hmm the, the mm. kind of <laughs> exactly that was exactly the noise I made. Um, who I think is yeah has said he has had maybe about five lines of dialogue, if that, and has mostly shown up to. You know, yeah. He, I mean, he, just, he gets a star turn in this one when he lifts guts up silently and then carries him down to where everyone's drinking. Yeah, so <laughs> you know that's his big role. Exactly. So Muro is apparently the big guy in his friendship group. And, uh, but I think it also maybe speaks to the fact that, that I think Muro maybe thinks of him, thought of himself as a, as the observer, as like the silent observer, actually in the kind of power dynamics. And I think that does kind of change how I see Guts and Griffith in a way, like thinking about 
if Muir is not Guts, if Muir is just observing Guts, then I think there's, it feels like there's something else going on in that relationship. And maybe like Guts kind of aggressive homophobia and Griffith's sexuality are kind of like Muir exploring two sides of something, or at least maybe um, there's a certain level of, of ignorance on Muir's part and in, in, in maybe inexperience in terms of really understanding queer contexts or maybe queer characters or those experiences. But I do think there's a kind of critical engagement with that feels like I, not, it suddenly changed. Once I figured that out, it just suddenly changed in my head. And I was like, is this Muro just observing masculinity, observing different factors of masculinity in his upbringing and kind of hooking narratives off these observations he made about how men treat each other and how power rankings exist and and like how like you mentioned last time read that it's like all these layered power rankings within the band of the hawk and it's about who who can fight the best but also like who's the who's the sexiest and who's like who drinks the most and all of this stuff mm-hmm. this very like high school boy rankings um but yeah that stuff just seems super interesting to me and like really flip yeah, my perspective is. on on some of the stuff that's going on in in this stuff that is, and it, I mean, one of the ways I've always read them, and I think this is something that where we are in the story now, you can already see happening, is that Guts and Griffith are sort of two ways of of kind of being a man that, that Mira can see, and that I think most, like, you know, it, here we're like very firmly in like kind of coming of age story. I think the rest of the golden yeah. age, as bizarre as it gets, is a coming of age story. Um, not just in the literal, you know, this is guts reaching adulthood. It's also, you know, him sort of very much learning uh, what his place in the world is and trying to, you know, form an identity and an outlook based on the things that are happening usually to him. Um which is the big theme at this point is everything that's happening is happening to guts at this point. He's not really acting on things, even though he's running around slashing people in half constantly. Um, you know, he's like the black death in, in a person form. Um, but he's just doing things that other people are telling him to basically. Um, but I, I see the two of them as this kind of interesting, like dichotomy between, you know, guts is like, very prototypical tough guy and then the deeper you look into him the deeper the the story looks into who he is he's very insecure and very not insecure necessarily but very unsure of of who he is and and what's going on but he presents himself as this kind of like you know uh tough hard-bitten character and griffith is outwardly sort of very like willowy and um like more ephemeral and and you know he kind of looks almost like transparent in certain scenes with like his mm-hmm. white hair and wearing his white shirts and everything he's less grounded but he is very very sure of exactly what he's doing i mean in this bath scene here with the two of them uh which is interesting because he's naked and he's he's sort of like you know on the white background of how the golden age stuff is drawn where these uh the brickwork around this well that they're standing around he kind of like you know he's very faint next to it but he's never sturdier in terms of 
here he is discussing this like i want a kingdom this is what all of this is about um i have this dream it's what motivates absolutely everything i'm doing i'm going to get a kingdom and you know guts looking at him and and admiring how how steadfast he is how completely assured he is about what what he's working toward um and that to me is like very much a coming of age staple kind of thing is is this character trying to figure out what's going on and trying to figure out what's going on in his life and who he's going to be and what he's going to work toward with guts here like based on his associations with other characters Um, yeah totally and and there are ways in which you know as we see kind of like even within this this episode the stuff we're covering you you sort of see how it, it gets into i think the story starting to posit things about what is a good way to survive in the world and, and live for something and what's a bad way to do it um anyway yeah that that stuff kind of and so it doesn't surprise me that much that if if he kind of sees himself as being the one on the on the outside of this looking at these two characters like you know guts and griffith are very much in the band of the hawk as well and especially after this this opening raid where guts kind of cements himself as being part of the group and shows off how good he is at fighting in front of all of them like as part of a group it's like very much these are the two these are the two guys with kind of competing personalities and visions who are like the head of this friend group you know they're the they're the ones that you know it doesn't surprise me that much maybe that mira is like when thinking about it that mira sees himself as watching that happen rather than being the the person like driving that forward yeah definitely i think yeah it's it is interesting and he he did in the interview he says like he's only that he was it's it's an old interview which is interesting as well it was like when um when it was about at a berserk volume 20 so it's like midway through actually and Mm -hmm. um but he specifically says that like in his friend group he felt that he was only good at drawing manga and he wasn't even that good at it. Like, you know, that was kind of how he saw himself, right? Is is like, there was also like somebody there that was better than him. And so I, I think this like sense of admiration um, and and fear um, also of kind of like other male figures does like really come through. Uh, yeah, especially in these sections. Um, but we're, I think, uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we can dig into that a bit more further on as well. But I do want to mm-hmm. also bring attention to this ridiculous image of of Griffith, where he's holding the the bailet that is hanging around his neck, which is what is revealed in this this scene, the, the kind of bath scene, an obvious bit of foreshadowing um, that the, that we're aware of. But I think Griffith just is just holding it, holding it, and saying "neat, huh?" and like smiling, like a, a teenage boy would smile. And I I think there's some like. It's, we often see in, in Berserk, like, um, female characters having, being images of innocence, but I really like that we have the moment of, of Griffith being somehow innocence here, and that actually being something that, that throws off Guts. Guts is like, we see Griffith as a, as equally young as Guts, and it's kind of like, that's unsettling for, for Guts, because Guts also, you know, everyone else is, is going on about how charismatic and powerful he is. But he's also just a kid with like a neat, a neat thing, um, which, yeah, I don't know, just seems interesting. 
We never really go back there with Griffith. We're never going to end up back there. It is... Um, there is stuff and like explicit dialogue in this too where, you know, you'll have um, the blonde ponytail guy with freckles. Uh, judo. Judo. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It's 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 Japanese romanization, but I always read it as Judea, like judo christian but like yeah maybe it's maybe i'm wrong he's he's a big fan of the capital w west uh, <laughs> um but he even says like at, at certain points he'll uh, i think in this too he, he says like look at him he's so look at griffith he's so um you know he's our leader and he's he's so talented and he's such an excellent tactician and so uh, politically savvy as well but then you know look at him he smiles and plays around like a kid too um like there, there's a good amount of stuff in this which i think is smart in reinforcing that these characters even though they're doing <laughs> very adult things in terms of murdering people and so forth and so on are themselves like i think they're all supposed to be about 19 here um you know and, and they're all kind of portrayed as they are still figuring things out they are still sort of in between even if they seem so assured like and that's part of i think what makes the the griffith thing so interesting where you have this scene where he's talking about his his dream uh and he's also going neat look at my neat egg with an (laughs) eye on it (laughs) like it's it is kind of it doesn't it doesn't sort of inflate these characters or not inflate, I guess like harden these characters too much into like set in their way kind of uh, depictions of people, which makes them, I think it's one of the things that helps like make these characters um, like stand out more. I think it's why people are drawn to them more and why, because they do have that kind of humanity to them. Yeah. And, um, and like, yeah, uh, this is the last time I'll I'll, br- I'll bring on the borrowed words of Mura, but there, just specifically like his mentioning of shoujo manga is in relation to this idea of like emotional depth or characters, which where you act, you see their emotions, and that he kind of comments that like you know boys manga of the time was was very cold, or he felt that it was cold, mm. and so he felt himself in a midpoint between the you know between the two, like both interested in like the extreme action and violence and technical art of something like fist of the North star, but then also the, the kind of emotional depth and court drama of something like the Rose of Versailles. And so I do, I do find it interesting that, yeah, that he's, that we get this. And I think you're right. I think that is actually something that makes, that makes Berserk stand out is that it does have that real strong interest in, in the emotional journey of its characters, especially in this golden age arc. And I think, we're about to get a load of that in this section as well. I mean, we do roll directly from from that bit into a panel that just says the war has gone on for 100 years. That's um, a long time. Which I love. I just, I love if I, I can only, the reason I read it like that is because in my brain it only plays in like the Dark Souls narrator voice. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, we, we just get a lot of people being chopped up, and we've we've moved on three years, and um, the band of the hawk have been doing their doing their stuff. I guess um, now they're nineteen years old. They were yeah. even younger before. I forgot that there was that time skip there. 
Yeah, yeah. And they've, they're now implicated into the war in a way that is suddenly going to become important to the plot. Like, no, we talked before about how the early parts of, of this Golden Age section, the war is kind of like a thing that's just around, like it's just a constant state of being. Um, and even though we open with the, the war has gone on for a hundred years, it's kind of now we we're now like the war is a specific war between specific aggressors and the the band of the hawk are growing up and becoming impl- implicated in all of those power struggles. Um, and at the same time, we get a power struggle that's happening within the band of the hawk between Casca and and Guts mostly. Um, that Casca is still unhappy with Guts and how he acts. Um, mm-hmm. but there's not I don't know if there's much worth talking about in that um, because that kind of rolls straight into the appearance of Zod right we do get some great some great uh, panels in this this one that says the war is gone for 100 years has so many spears just <laughs> spear after spear he's really feeling this he starts to introduce us to care like to uh this is like the maybe the only thing i'll say about this because the things that i this part makes me think of are things that will come up a little bit later um but he does introduce us to kind of the naming conventions of uh <laughs> of, of military units in uh oh yeah in, in windham uh such as the black ram iron lance heavy cavalry yeah uh, <laughs> And if you think that sounds extravagant, then just you wait, dear listeners. Yeah. <laughs> they charge into battle wearing uh, like metal ram's horns on their helmets. Yeah, it's, and I, I, I was good stuff. when you were talking about violence earlier. I was thinking like something about this this teenage thing got stuck in my head, and then there's like this silliness of the the war all of a sudden. Like the war has gone on for a hundred years, but it's a war between people who brand themselves as like the Black Ram Cavalry Unit. You know, like. Yeah. How serious are we supposed to take this? And I, there is this part of me that's like, well, that sounds like a sports team. And this whole thing kind of it start, starts to have this feel of like teen, like the the war is like teenage roughhousing, or like the there's got to be a reading of Berserk where the war is just like the ongoing war of masculinity, right? Like it's this the ongoing oh, struggle yeah. to prove yourself as a man slash boy in the world as you grow up. That's all the war is here, and so the the band of the hawk and the black ram iron lance heavy cavalry are just the different sports teams or gangs or it, it it's almost like the um the bike gangs right from akira which was like a you know based on japanese post-war bike gangs that all had like ridiculous names as well um and this kind of idea of yeah of like maybe this this kind of the, the position of what a, of gangs in in uh, the fight for japanese masculinity in in post-war japan feels like it's it's coming through here but maybe that's too heavy a read of the black ram iron lance heavy cavalry i don't know i don't know you could you could go off and like i don't know there there is something to the fact that when i think largely speaking the most horrific violence the violence that gets the most uh emotional weight in berserk typically doesn't happen as part of a war between people you know between people fighting each other armies coming together uh it's gory and it's bad but i think the stuff where mira like really takes the time to say this is this is really uh unsettling and scarring is is stuff that happens off the battlefield i think typically 
which does like kind of lend that thing of like, you know, this isn't the real, this isn't where things are really happening there. And you could talk a lot too about the idea of like (laughs) when guts kills, like, you know, dozens of people at once, it's kind of presented with like, you know, it's the, it's the boys, uh, Mongo thing where it's like, you know, he, he really, he really wiped out that team over there. Like, look at him go. <laughs> like he's a star quarterback or something. It's, it's not that man just killed dozens of other men and now has to <laughs> live with that. Well, <laughs> exactly. Right. It's the context of like, I, I really got into the, the video game Captain Tsubasa uh, last year which is like an anime based on a, a long-running manga football series right and the and i looked mm-hmm. at the manga after getting into the video game and the way the manga is drawn is like yeah the violence looks like like the football looks like berserk violence right and the narrative is about a team of people of well of boys who are like competing with each other for like power rankings and like the whole thing is not so far away you know obviously there is i as far as i'm aware no rape um but the the general Jesus. kind of the general kind of um, tone is kind of there, and I do wonder about that context of Berserk being published in those magazines alongside those stories, right? As one of those stories does kind of change the read as well, versus like you know uh, our reading right now of it in like these black tomes with like a parental guidance <laughs> sticker on the front of it, where like it's a kind of a cross between. Um, a lost heavy metal album that was never released and like the Bible, you know, and tonally in a way you can kind of read it as a cross between the two of those in terms of scale and ambition and also kind of violence and um, its treatment of that. But it, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, I a, think the Bible there's a lot be of fun. A better read if it had some more sort of like sports sports team style like hijinks and camaraderie and you know i think yeah. it, would, it would flow better i mean yeah. there's definitely a, a some kind of it's it's tends to to be less less sporty but there's definitely lots of teams fighting against each other in, in my reading of the bible anyway but we'll do that for the next podcast we'll do the bible. actually yeah let's just move on to <laughs> <laughs> king james obviously you gotta get our yeah. lakes of fire and uh it's yeah. all just it's all just literary like speaking of lodestones of uh, pop culture, what, the Bible, the King James Bible <laughs> is the lodestone of pop culture for the language. Everything's a quote from the Bible. Every heavy metal album is a quote from the Bible. Anyway, yeah. another yeah. time, perhaps. Um, but while you're talking about knockabout fighting and we, we roll into the, 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 we roll from combat to combat here really is like we get this, this knockabout battle and then we get the big battle with, with Zod Speaking um, of the main character of the Bible, uh, Zod. Zod. Nosferatu Zod. <laughs> yeah. That's um, named that's after new, the, the movie. That's New Testament. Um, uh, yeah. They, there's a line in here as well. Sorry, you got to sum it up. But there is a line I just thought of. I'm already talking. That's going to be bad if I don't follow through. But there's a line where they say that he's lived forever. That's why he's called Nosferatu. Yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> opens up a few. Uh, sort of like metatextual kind of uh, <laughs> quandaries for Berserk. <laughs> yeah, I I, lo- I love that so much, and it's wonderful also because you know Nosferatu is like um, it's a supposedly a Romanian word, 
um, because of uh, Dracula, obviously. But nobody okay. can find the actual word that it's supposed to be based on. So there's kind of various theories uh, about it being a misheard word or like it being actually a Greek word and someone just said it was Romanian because in those days, you know, you didn't have the internet or whatever. So whatever some person said about Transylvania or Romania mm. and wrote it in a Western book just became fact. Um so yeah, like it's a kind of fake Romanian word, which is something that could have turned up in my Resident Evil Romanian cultural context piece, but I couldn't fit it in, uh, which you can read on bullet points, which Reed happens to be the editor of. Uh, that's right. This is plug yeah, is like it's like hidden treasure. If you found it <laughs> by listening <laughs> to this right. podcast, you deserve this plug. So you're four episodes deep, like half an hour into this one. You yeah, can... <laughs> that plug was earned. But yeah, no um, that that line is is just. It's almost hilarious beyond the point where I wasn't even sure what I was laughing at anymore, but there's just something so goofy it's about, so like, they call him Nosferatu because he lives forever. It yeah, feels it reminds so me, out of time. It reminds me a little bit of, and this might be too, too in the weeds, but there's a line in Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons <laughs> of the Patriots, where they're introducing the character Vamp, who's the immortal Romanian uh, seeming vampire, nanomachine vampire. Oh yeah, spoiler that game. It's twenty years old now, and they introduce him, and I think Raiden says, "Well, is that why they call him Vamp? Because he drinks blood and he can't be killed?" And they say, "No, it's because he's bisexual." <laughs> and and then it just can, the conversation continues, and it's like this line has that same thing of like there are like. Like it's like sort of like just doing word association. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like I guess you you got there like through some layers of translation and pop culture reference and yeah, right. That's I mean yeah, that feels like a real Kojima line. Um, that's fantastic. I can't believe I didn't know that line exists. That's it's so good. That's just uh, utter nonsense. Um, yeah, but Nosferatu's odd. I don't, I don't know about his sexuality, but he is a large horned uh, bear ram thing that... With, with a cat face? Yeah, that would have killed uh, Guts. He basically fights Guts. He's the, it's the return of the demons. We suddenly get a demon back in this thing. Um, but we don't really get much out of him. He just kind of... He just really wants, he's been around for 300 years and he really wants a good fight and, and Guts offers him a good fight and then Griffith turns up and offers him an even better fight so he's very happy. And then he gets a bit scared because he sees the neat bailet um, that, that Griffith hangs around his neck. But what I, this is a really long combat sequence and um, especially off the back of the battle we just had, the one thing I really noticed here is like Muir is, is in his prime at this point in a way that um is really quite striking from the previous stuff it feels like suddenly he's going back to the black swordsman aesthetic mm -hmm. and he's spent all this time doing these incredibly detailed golden age drawings at the start of this and he combines the two of them and the result is just incredible i think like the all of it like he specifically chooses to make zod this kind of hair covered muscle beast which is an absolute nightmare to draw for sure but just allows for for all of these incredible panels that are just full of these uh beautiful beautifully weighted black lines for all of um zod's fur and then 
as becomes signature throughout Berserk, this kind of hatching patterns overlaid and the use of um, the use of like speed lines to form the shape of absolute everything in in some of these panels. Like the sword becomes mm-hmm. just speed lines, guts becomes just speed lines, um, and it's really just. And and then we get these massive double page spreads that we haven't previously got, and they're just. They seem just like incredibly self-indulgent, but in the best possible way. There's one that's just Zod, just like a Zod filling the entire frame, um, just being all beautiful ink brush hair. Um, and we get another one. We get this pattern that he, that um, Murasat's using, which I really like and is used throughout Berserk, which is when something dramatic happens, he just flips from using thin lines and hatching to using really dark heavy black lines and shadows mm-hmm. so that everything looks like it's suddenly being lit um with like a floodlight and mm-hmm. yeah it's just like i just when i was reading this i was just i i like i said we said earlier i felt bad going through it we reading it quickly to keep the action going because i felt like i could just hang out on any one of these pages and just enjoy the yeah um enjoy the line work and and the work going into every single one of these pages and yeah for some reasons so much love is lavished on zod as a character even versus previous demons he's just drawn over and over again from different angles always looking really cool i think he's excited to have the monster to draw again i think yeah. the 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 type of violence that he's drawing here i think he's having a good time with <laughs> There's uh, the kind of introduction to the battle is his guts walking up and, you know, everyone's saying, don't go in there. Uh, Zod has been, it's like the last enemy fortress that they have to take. And, you know, they've progressed all the way to like the inner keep of this castle. And Zod is just in there, just ruining everyone who comes in. Um, so guts is, you know, upset about that. They try to stop his, his raiders try to stop him that he commands now and he's like no nobody can stop me and he comes in and it's this great like some of these panels that you're talking about and these pages where he comes into this sort of like dungeonous it's supposed to be a keep and it kind of looks like a dungeon and he he comes he comes in and there's just just like dudes like cut in half with their intestines spilled out and just sort of like parts of guys lying around and um it's the you can tell he's it seems like he's having a, a real good time introducing this character and it's um, sort of the scale of it is, is gnarly in a way that he hasn't done with like one character is responsible for all this carnage. He hasn't really done this since um, like uh, the black swordsman type stuff. Yeah. Totally. And it's like, it's really fun. And yeah. And he, he does here too. And he, I think this is what you were talking about. It almost looks like like old like Tales from the Crypt comics or something with the sort of like floodlight effect that you're talking about where the the blacks are really black and you know there's a, a page I'm looking at right now where it's just a full page of just corpse faces. Yeah. And you turn yeah. the page and it's Zod standing there uh in front of a mountain of corpses and it's there there's something very kind of like uh gleefully pulp and i i don't know i i think these things are fun i 
I think like the fight itself was, um, yeah, I, the pacing of it just after another battle was maybe not the most exciting thing, but I think the art in this section is, is really something. Yeah. I mean, I think he's just being really technical here, you know, it's like he, he's getting enjoyment out of really stretching his ability here. And I think that is a big part of manga and definitely like at the time i i think there probably was a fair bit of competition between the different artists as well um and yeah it just feels like he's pulling out all the stops i yeah like you said that pile the pile of kind of heads or faces is almost like abstract and wonderful it's got this like and it's got his same obsession with having eyes just like oh, yeah. dangling out and the whole thing of it is it, it's gory but it's it's really it's gory in a like you said a very pulpy knockabout way right like it doesn't feel explicitly gory it feels like playfully gory it feels like it's in that zone of um yeah of like enjoyment like we're we're not supposed to be really that scared by this we're supposed to be enjoying all of this that's the that's the vibe here which as you say is very different from the from the violence we get The, the kind of like violence of intimacy that we see elsewhere and battles are like enjoyable violence for the characters and even battles with demons in some ways are enjoyable violence for the for the characters because it's an opportunity for them to test themselves and to be ranked and to be you know to move up and down of the the teenage boy ranking list um for their fight so yeah yeah and i I do think it's something that's really interesting when you go through and you kind of have uh some knowledge of kind of the scope of the whole series and everything and and you do know that he can well and we we have seen some of it too can get uh can show violence in a way that's extremely upsetting and then also have these things that sort of on the surface look like they should also be kind of like truly nightmarish uh demons and gore and everything but it's like i don't know i don't know how you look at odd and you you don't just smile at him like he's just yeah, so, yeah. he's so ridiculous you know he's um yeah and part of it's the dialogue too like zod is just he's having a great time talking about how pumped he is to fight someone who's you know the first human to cut his skin or whatever in in hundreds of years and yeah it's very funny he's like wow you're so <laughs> great i'm loving then, this yeah <laughs> And then Griffith shows up and he's like, wow, there's two of you guys. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) This is so fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's roughhousing with demons. Yeah. Yeah. Zod is very much just like, you know, he's the (laughs) semi-feral mutt that hangs out with with you and your friend (laughs) when you're playing around, you know. He's one Um, of the boys. Zod is. Yeah. Uh, Zod, I think also, I maybe sort of the last thing I want to say about this little bit is, uh, I think a sort of an all-timer monster design. I think he, he's, uh, familiar enough to, uh, not be like, he, he's very recognizable as like, oh, this is sort of like a, a demon in kind of like the Baphomet tradition with his little goat legs and his horns and stuff, but he's also got like it's it's kind of hard to pin down exactly what he looks like he sort of looks like a werewolf he sort of looks like a bear he sort of looks like a lion um and he's just like and and the stuff you're saying too that just the way he moves around a page is really fun 
Yeah. Yeah, sometimes he's just a big shadow. Bits of him kind of, yeah, like he changes in scale and positioning. And yeah, Mura does this cool thing where he like he leaves these kind of absent spaces. It's almost like it's almost like he's foggy somehow. I don't I don't like is this the same way that he has these black shit? He loves to do this thing where he puts someone, some demon or person when they're doing some violence, puts their head in pure black and they have like burning eyes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like Zod, Zod is the, like many other Berserk characters has, yeah, a lot of transformations, right? Like he looks different in different panels, it's like a completely different aesthetic sometimes going on, like different parts of him are shaded or blocked. And um, yeah, I, I think that's always fun in Berserk. We always get this kind of change of art style, depending on the tone of the scene or the scale of it. Um, and then off the back of, of Zod, after Griffith and Guts are both beaten up by Zod and Zod heads off because he, he's scared of the, the bailet or he doesn't want to become implicated into the bailet. Yeah. We get a whole ton of of courtroom drama straight out of out of Game of Thrones um, with so Game of Thrones Junior and yeah Casca and Griffith all hanging around at the the Wyndham Wyndham Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, who are the the enemies of the Tudors in the Hundred Years' War here? And um, yeah, we get actually just a ton of of scenes between. Uh, Guts and Casca, Guts and Griffith, as um, they become implicated into court power struggles. And um, yeah, this is where I really felt like I... It was funny that I just read about um, Rose of Versailles because we're Mm -hmm. really in like the court here and the dramas of the court and like who wants to be favored by the king. Um, And we even... Like, as this thing progresses, um, we, you know, we get like a princess as well introduced um, who becomes enamored with Griffith. And like, yeah, the whole thing just become just feels like really like a kind of shoujo manga feel to it where it's all about these interlocking character relationships. And yes, there's there's then like an assassination attempt. And then there is like some guts based violence um as he murders one of the lords in the court under Griffith's instruction and the the lord's son. But the overriding tone of this section, for me, just really felt like we were in... We, we were in almost like a slightly different story to everything we come before. Like, Berserk has this weird trait of, of tr- continually transforming itself as a narrative. Um, mm-hmm. And this phase of it is, a yeah, I think an interesting one. It's not that it's a particularly amazing courtroom kind of not courtroom <laughs> there's no lawyers involved yet um court kind of king's court drama but it 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 does enough to to kind of keep the intrigue going it plays a uh, has some some kind of interesting character scenes um building up between the different characters and we get a lot of time with them just kind of hanging out with each other well it's it's kind of like simple you know it has just enough characters just enough sort of scheming lords that you have a sense of intrigue without needing to um, be much more complex than that. Like he could have, I think it'd probably be pretty easy to bog yourself down in this stuff. He could start getting into, you know, his fictional uh, world and kind of the, the different relationships between these lords and blah, 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 which I think he Mira knows is not really, 
what we're here for or what he's what he needs these characters to be at court for um it's sort of you know again an elaboration on the theme of power and and sort of what people will do to advance um i i do like a lot to how clean everything becomes as soon as they come here uh the band of the hawk look scrubbier than everyone else but they also look you know they're they're now wearing sort of they're not walking around in their armor and they're not covered in dirt and blood they're sort of just like hanging out and um it, it very much feels removed from everything that was happening before and i think that's like a good it's just like a good simple effect and then you get into this assassination stuff and it it um becomes very dirty and very violent again very quickly um yeah totally um there's a there's a scene i want to zoom in on a little bit here um before we get to that assassination which is this one between griffith and guts where they're on a kind of little stairway in a in a by the side of a forest um and griffith is drawn to kind of leaning um in various poses uh on the side wearing a kind of ornate uh tunic and and guts is hanging out there and again i I felt the shadow of this kind of teenage boy thing but then also we we get this um incredible ending to volume five where griffith says tell me do i need a reason each time i put myself in harm's way for your sake and Mm -hmm. i swear that like if you're reading berserk and you've got this far that it really feels like it's taking a sharp turn into a romance at that at that um moment at the end of of volume five because we also then get at the start of six like we we get guts kind of flashing back to that and like gazing at griffith and so it's it's really like going heavily into this this kind of like two guys on either side of the tracks in this court in court politics who represent different kind of masculinities um yeah like you know in in it it is essentially a romance here and i just i found that really like it's it's interesting because i think tonally it's it's got a lot more affection than griffith's previous kind of slightly i think dodgy i want you or you know where he represents some kind of like hostile force that is uh sexually um perverting guts in some way here it's it's really affectionate and it there's something kind of i mean obviously you know <laughs> it's not going to end well for anybody involved uh for in the most dramatic way that anything any romance or any relationship could not end well but yeah i really i thought this was quite startling this scene um in comparison to the slightly more kind of boisterous um you know we're naked and throwing buckets of water type stuff that it it just feels kind of heartfelt yeah and this this stuff here is why um a lot of of what's to come works so well is i think the one thing and i was thinking this before when you were talking about you know he's uh consciously drawing from you know comics for boys and for girls which is you know, ultimately a really ridiculous way to look at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, but the fact is he's working within this format, but he's also kind of 
taking lessons from another format, which allows him to, it's like, you know, if you, you kind of just flip through Berserk, it does look like a, a gory comic for teenage boys, right? It's very, um, yeah, it's like a heavy metal album. It's like, look at this cool dude, especially early and later with, with his enormous sword and his eye patch and his friggin' wrist mounted, uh, crossbow <laughs> that he's got. Um, but like, you know, you look into it and the reason it works and that these, these characters are more than just action figures is like, it's just a basic story thing. Like he's, he's willing to say, well, and using sort of the language, like you're pointing out of these like shoujo comics with like, they're here talking and their leaves falling around them like feathers. And it's all very delicate. And, exactly. um, it does have this really romantic thing, but I think he's also, and whether this is, it doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. It's a, it is sort of a commentary on like the difference between like, uh, like sexual romance and intense friendship. And especially for a coming of age story of like these characters who it's like the line is almost non-existent beyond like the physical act itself like for all intents and purposes these like guts and griffith at this point are in love with each other like they've yeah totally in in this sort of like strange stilted way that is like very you know someone has to say are we dating first uh, (laughs) before they can call each other boyfriends it's like that kind of relationship but it's like the two of them have kind of like circled around each other and have spent these three years together understanding that they they truly love one another in a way that is you know platonic in in how it's depicted but i don't know it's i mean this was also a a hot topic of conversation on uh because of i think of all things like fucking marvel movies uh which is how our culture processes itself these days. <laughs> um, but the thing of like people really talking about like, you know, uh, are Sam and Frodo, were they in love or were they just intent, like incredibly close friends? And it's like, at a certain point, read it how you want to. And yeah, it's, you're kind of like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know sexuality what you mean. is fluid enough. I think for a lot of people in a certain sense that like the emotions of it are almost the same when you're depicting these kind of the intensity of these friendships. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't, I think the idea that there is some border between love and sexuality and um, fraternity and, you know, like all these kind of philosophical concepts, I, I just don't, I don't see it. I don't think it exists in my opinion and my experience. And so I think that, yeah, we're talking about a scale, a sliding scale of different culturally acceptable activities and how people perceive themselves and how they wish to be perceived by others. But in the end, we're talking about the emotional relationships that that we have between, yeah, between ourselves. And as you say, I think you're right to say, like it, it is absurd to look at, to look at Berserk and be like, well, you know, and to say anything other than that at this point they're in love. I mean, there, there's this like wonderful scene that we we just get. I've just flicked along a bit, and it's so cute. Um, where Guts goes up to um, Griffith's study 
because Griffith's kind of become very integrated into the court at this point. And we see Griffith with a mm-hmm. lot of costume changes and doing a lot of kind of like courtly things. And, and Griffith seems suddenly in, the, in their element and Guts is still kind of walking around in, in what looks like jeans and a t-shirt, um, <laughs> which is just wonderful. And there's like Guts comes up to like ask, you know, to talk to Griffith. And um, Griffith is like, oh, I'm just reading. I'm just doing some studying. And he's like, and there's all kinds of books in here. And then he shows him a copy of the Kama Sutra. And then, oh, yeah. and then Guts sits in the corner of the room <laughs> reading the Kama Sutra while Griffith is kind of doing his, like, I don't know, like his, he's stamping something with his stamp and he's doing his work. And the whole thing is just so, it's so adorable to me. Like, it's such a cute scene. And it's so funny, yeah. like Guts with his legs crossed, um, <laughs> like flicking through the Kama Sutra, yeah, he wearing well his tight-fitting like a... black t-shirt. It's, the, the, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. They're, they, they're in love and at home um, and intimate in a way that, that it, in a way that is um, very obvious, like, you know, very obviously like a mark of intimacy right the way they're sharing this space in that scene tells me so much more about their intimacy than if than them throwing a bucket of water at each other or whatever you know like this this is where it feels like um yeah that that we're really in in their little their little cottage basically which is yeah yeah Um, and i think i i was thinking a lot of that and also like what happens right after that which is maybe it's probably easy to summarize quickly but um yeah i'll I'll just summarize it quickly after that um you know they're at court and um the king's the king's brother is second in line to the throne um is that right second in line yeah yeah that is yeah he's Uh, count julius General Count of the Julius. White Dragons. He's got great curly hair. That's his sports um, team, the White Dragons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, he's he's uh, f- like high up in court. He doesn't like being disrespected. He thinks Griffith is getting ahead of himself. Uh, he doesn't like that Griffith and the Band of the Hawk are commoners um, and that they've now sort of established themselves as you know, they proved themselves as being part of the army, which gave them, uh, gave Griffith, he was being knighted, but they, weren't they calling him like a count or something? I think it's a Viscount, I think is what they use, I, but I don't, oh, okay. I don't know if Mura respects the medieval order of, uh, <laughs> order of land ownership or anything. I think it's just and some, then they call some him words. Lord, and they're always calling him Lord Griffith too. And it's like, I don't know. He's, he's a, he's a player in the, in the court now. Yeah, he's going to be made a general, I think, is the big deal. That the the, the General Julius doesn't like that he will also be a general. Because Griffith is not of any kind of honorable birth. No, he's just some upstart mercenary um, who has refined manners. So, uh, and then he especially doesn't like it. He he notices that uh, the princess uh, trips near Griffith and he sort of catches her and she she is... uh, extremely demure and she blushes and you know it's he sees that well there's there's sort of an entry point to uh actually marrying into royalty for griffith and he doesn't like that so 
Griffith gets named to be sort of the honor guard or something for uh he's named as like a kingsman uh for yeah, this for the royal hunt. hunt the band of the hawk get to be uh the kingsman for this which is usually given to uh the boy julius um and so julius says this is the time when you're out hunting an accident can happen uh he pays you know this another a creep a different brand of creep sort of a snivelly creep yeah um, there there's a good there's a very smooth egg shaped creep in this isn't it who's who's helping to plot he's a kind of varus spider type uh, to continue the game of thrones comparison even though it's probably more fire emblem than the game of thrones but um yeah it, he's part of this right one of those creeps. Yeah. egg creep comes back yeah we get sort of the uh, goblin creep i guess is sort of like his genus um of the, this guy uh anyway he's he's hired to assassinate griffith and make it look like an accident um during this hunt it doesn't work Griffith is protected because underneath his armor is the bayonet, which deflects the uh, the arrow, the crossbow arrow that's fired at him. And so that leads us to the scene that we were just talking about, where Griffith now uh, has realized that someone in the court is trying to kill him. Um, at first, the court kind of thinks that someone is trying to kill the princess to assassinate the princess. Griffith realizes right away that's not the case. That someone's uh fucking with his plan to get a kingdom he doesn't like that so in this scene where uh guts comes in and they're kind of hanging out and they have this you know this great very like you said just like very ordinary intimacy of you know guts flipping through this kama sutra while griffith is doing his work and then that immediately turns into griffith saying like i need you to kill someone for me um yeah and saying this was obviously this Count Julius uh, who's gunning for me. I know it's him. Here's why. Uh, tracing the poison used on the arrow back. And I need you to go in and do it. And this isn't like fighting on a battlefield. I need you to like to kill this specific man. Um, and Guts looks sort of uncomfortable with it and sort of does it because Griffith is saying, this is for me. This is important. Um, which is an important kind of turn in their relationship. Yeah. That, sure. Yeah. Like guts has always been sort of deployed by Griffith before. And now Griffith is using him more nakedly for not what guts has always done since he was a child, which is, you know, fight battles. But now he's saying, I need you to like sort of rearrange the political situation here to my advantage. Yeah. He's um, using him for his ends rather than the ends of the band of the Hawk. Right. It's the kind of the big distinction here yeah and so yeah you have this thing where because these characters love one another and it's then it's kind of curdled in this sense too where griff is saying i need you to go and and do this thing and guts appears to be agreeing to it only because someone he cares so much for uh is ordering it and i don't know should i do you have anything you want to talk about with that stuff or like should we sum up yeah so we get griffith being very unreadable for us and for guts here in terms of how he's manipulating him but yeah i don't i don't know if um we we can probably talk about that a bit more later on because we roll into also some kind of some daddy issues um with the fact that um 
this general that Guts has to kill is um, ha- is kind of training his son to sword fight very roughly, much like in a mirror image, which is literally shown to us in the comic of uh, Gambino, perhaps. Um, and Guts goes in and it turns out that Guts' stealth stats are very low. That's what we discover because in going, to, assass- sword. <laughs> going to assassinate one man, he, he chops one man. Then obviously his son walks in, which, you know, everyone could have seen coming. Um, and Guts stabs his son. And then the guards see that Guts has stabbed the son. And he has to go chop the guards. And then some more guards see that Guts has chopped the guards. So he has to, and you know, by the end of it, fight a whole bunch of them. he's just chopped a whole load of people. And he's not exactly Agent 47 his way through that situation. No, this is like how I play stealth games. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've been first, discovered. The first kill, you know, I'm very meticulous until I get that. And then it's just, fuck it. Who cares anymore? But the thing, um, I, the thing I found here is mm-hmm. it feels like, like as a plot point, you would think this would be a big deal. Like Guts killing this guy's son. The mm-hmm. son's called Adonis, I believe. Um, which I think is a, a name there to suggest that he's a lover, not a fighter. Um, hence his sword training going so bad but it, it feels like a big beat because they're kind of trying Mura's trying to draw this connection with Gambino but it actually just kind of it kind of falls because it doesn't get picked up in any way or go forward and in a way it's not that compelling I don't know if you felt that it just, I... it just feels like it, it's it's one of many events that now happen between Guts and Griffith that start to drive a wedge there I think that is definitely part of it. I think there's, it's dropped in terms of, I don't think the comic is, okay, so you get this thing where it's actually this, I think I think just the actual moment of, of how it's depicted of him uh, killing the Count, his target, and then he he just runs with his sword out at this point you know, this figure who opens the door and it's when he's, you know, impaled this child against a wall that he sees that he's just killed a child and, um, the kid, um, reaches his hand out. Adonis reaches his hand out and is choking on his own blood and guts looks, you know, shattered. And he holds, uh, his hand as the, as Adonis dies, which is, you know, one of the most tender things we've ever seen him do. And I think that is just in terms of like how it's presented, I think is really strong and is it's like one of the the moments in all of this that sticks in my head as being very upsetting. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's also, it, Guts is very, conf- he has a lot of confusion as well, right? Like in that moment, he kind of like grabs his hand like they're both kind of confused in that moment like why yeah one of them has killed the other and guts like grabs his hand almost un- unthinkingly and then kind of looks at his hand and he's it- it's yeah it's definitely miles away from sad guts right like it's it's so much more effective than what we've previously seen where we've had kind of guts be like it's it's not sadness it's this kind of like complete cognitive failure where he just doesn't seem to register what's happening now um and tries to somehow hold it together yeah and i think 
you know, it's, it's, it's really strong. Confusion is kind of the right way. That's like the dominant emotion is, is something very pathetic, uh, in, in both of them at that moment where this horrible thing has happened and neither of them really understand why it had to happen, but it was sort of inevitable, you know, um, from the moment the door opened it, it was going to happen. Uh, and for guts, it's kind of an inevitability of, uh, him agreeing to do this thing for Griffith is that he kind of sold away something of himself beyond what he was doing as a mercenary when, once he agreed to kill this count. Um, and I think you get this great thing before where you have the very obvious, like echoing of his relationship to Gambino when you see Adonis and Count Julius and um, sword fighting and Julius is, you know, grabbing him by the hair and he's sort of beating him with the sword and uh, really laying into him and it's it's brutal and you're having this vision of the father figure. And then you get like, you know, and then it calls it out explicitly, which, you know, you have guts thinking about Gambino, which I think is unnecessary and blunt. and Yeah, totally. Is like in comparison to kind of the subtlety of what's happening in the moment where uh, Adonis is dying on his sword because he just stabbed him. I think there's so much going on in those panels that is very understated. Um, you know, at least in berserk terms, this is quite understated about what's going on with this character of guts at the time. But then, like, you have that, you have that thing, and then it erupts into this like action scene, and I think that stuff is poor but i think the actual moment of the death um i think it works in if it didn't have that like explicit call out i think it would be so much stronger because it calls back to guts and sort of his formative like kind of following the path he's kind of been on ever since he decided to you know fight back against those wolves and then kind of later we get these parallels with um stuff we'll see in this in the material we're covering here, but very direct parallels with formative experiences for Griffith and Casca with um, both being victimized and indirectly in Griffith's case, victimizing a child um, as part of like formative moments of who they are. And I think this idea of guts killing this kid um, as, as his sort of like, huge big dramatic turning point is really strong and it ties into a lot of what you see in berserk about kind of how people become who they are and it's it's relationship to childhood and uh the horrible things that happen to and that children do as being formative if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely it's it's just a yeah it's funny how it sits there with because we're not given adonis for very long right the character is introduced moments before his death really and yeah it sits in a very funny place but it is as you say it's there's something very understated about it which is quite attractive in comparison like we're not then given like like comparison to the encounter with zod which is like a massive multi chapter fight which then is harked you know we keep get it keeps getting redrawn right we keep getting drawings again and again of zod going basically doing his team rocket like blasting off again speech like i don't remember what he says but it's something like you know 
evil will follow you or you will you. you will face death or whatever um uh-huh. and that that all kind of yeah like that all comes back and back and back and we're beating around the head with it but as you say this moment is not we're not beating around the head with it we kind of we move on um and we do we move on to versailles literally versailles at this point um because when guts this, oh yeah drags his way out of um drags his way out of uh the the sewer that he falls into after escaping from this he goes to find griffith and griffith is is currently on a date with princess charlotte um and it's really like a this is where i really was like wow he's really this influence is coming in strong um you know they're literally there with a with a versailles fountain there's this there's a a half-naked mermaid which especially given the Kama Sutra and given the line that Griffith, when he gives Guts the Kama Sutra, when he says, a, I think he says a soldier, or maybe he says a man, has to, has to, uh, to become great, one has to be able to do more than fight, even things like this, and then gives him the Kama Sutra, want to borrow it. And then we have this kind of demure princess and Griffith here being very um, gentlemanly, but beneath this, this um, half-naked mermaid, or fully naked mermaid, I guess, because it's a mermaid, um, which yeah. does seem like an obvious kind of symbolism here for the for for oh, what yeah. for what Griffith is doing, and we have these kind of court the shots of like courtly dancers inside and um, all of this stuff, uh, and I think we have this this I, I found this seems like but it just works like incredibly well because we also get this great moment where um we have griffith going on about their dream but we have this great thing where griffith is like and you know right now i'm talking to you like he 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 drops his mask for a moment with the princess and he's like i'm even talking to a princess like this um and she doesn't seem to really notice but he's kind of like look how far i've come like he's he's bathing in his own glory here um and while Mm -hmm. he does this he he kind of delivers his theory of of friendship where he's like what i think a friend is is a one who is my equal and then we get this incredible panel of um guts gazing up the stairs towards griffith delivering the speech and this whole scene is kind of it's kind of wonderful because it's a scene between griffith and the princess but it's really a scene between griffith and guts because guts is at the bottom of the staircase listen, listening or uh, you know perhaps to everything that griffith is saying and in a way, um, there, there, there's this kind of conversation is happening there, and we get this panel where, where which is all black, uh, apart from just Guts and Griffith. But Griffith is at the top of a staircase, and Guts is at the bottom. After this line of um, "One who is my equal," um, yeah, and I just I really enjoyed this scene more than that preceding scene mm-hmm. in a way because I just love the the way in which you also have Casca's present kind of trying to protect guts from griffith perhaps but like this feels like a real like it's not a it's not a fight scene but it's a culmination of of a lot of things that are going on in this in this arc um about all it's all the characters relationships all of their kind of desires and dreams playing out um in this this like very stagey kind of fashion in front of this 
uh, manor house below the fountain with the staircase. And yeah, I, I really, I really like this scene and it feels very unusual again for Berserk because it's, it's all very demure and kind of, it's about people's internal, um, internal emotional journeys and it's about betrayal and, um, and dreams and things like this. So yeah, I, I thought this was quite a, quite a kind of effective scene. Yeah, I think so too. And just the, the characters that are chosen for this and how it's set at this manor house and how you have guts who literally just, you know, crawled out of a sewer and you have Griffith um, in his finery sort of like dancing around this fountain with the princess and talking to her. It's like, yeah, and just the staircase, I think is like such a great compositional move to have. <laughs> so you can have that panel of gut standing covered in filth at the bottom of the staircase, looking up at Griffith. Yeah. Um, and sort it, of establishing those things. And it, I like the way it kind of plays with, this is where I feel there's like a strong self-awareness about the kind of romantic uh, relationship between Griffith and Guts here because it's really playing with this idea of betrayal both the kind of betrayal of him talking to the princess and kind of having this mm -hmm. romantic encounter with the princess while Guts uh, murders him having seen that kind of intimacy of Guts in, in Griffith's chambers as you know kind of like as long-term partners right and but the betrayal here is not a is not necessarily that romantic betrayal but it's playing on the kind of um the 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 genre of the romantic betrayal scene right like it 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 just seems very it seems very self-aware to me um in a way that earlier scenes it suggested does. that i yeah like suggested that maybe Mura wasn't aware of this stuff but actually it seems like now it's it's hard to to really think that he could put this scene together without knowing that he's playing with these ideas of of um different relationships and relationships with value and the way the princess is kind of it, almost absent, right? She's almost a statue in this kind of scene because she doesn't have any idea what's really happening here, where the, the scene is really taking place without her. Um, it's, yeah, I just think it's very yeah, she's, sophisticated. She's sort of a... Yeah, it is. And, I mean, you have Guts, kind of, he's eavesdropping. And I think you do have sort of, like, the, like, sexual overtones of it are clear not just with you know the princess kind of swooning out as griffith talks to her and you know the the mermaid statue being there in the kama sutra before and you very much know that griffith is is uh pursuing her romantically and sexually and then you have casca walk up as well and she we know before has been has been is in love with Griffith in her own right as well. But then she's positioned as being sort of coupled with Guts again more explicitly because they're both, you know, down at the bottom of these stairs wearing their drab clothes. And it's like, it's sort of playing around with like, these are these two uh, heterosexual couples that now sort of belong to each other. But there's this, I, I still think Casca is a is a prop at this point. Yeah, um, sadly. But but there's like these sort of crisscrossing uh, romantic feelings between all four of them, right? I mean, the princess is sort of just you know 
she uh, goes one way like um her and griffith's interest in one another is just a straight line between them but then otherwise you have these between casca and guts and griffith you have these intersecting power dynamics and sexual dynamics and it's it is interesting i think there's there's a lot going on with how they're all kind of positioned and this is also casca again being like yeah this is who he is as guts is hearing this which kind of like puts them uh in the same position in in a lot of ways not just you know not just hey this is what it's like to be his friend it's like more than that right it's yeah it's hey if you're romantically interested in this guy like i have been this is what he's like you know yeah 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 she's very yeah Um, she's very much like yeah this is what it's like to be in love with griffith this is the experience you will have and that's kind of she goes after him right like casca here is the one who chooses after seeing griffith uh, guts turn up or beaten up she goes after him but not necessarily to go and be like it's like in a funny motivation because she's both being like oh you can't interrupt griffith while he's doing this work you know you can't just go up there all covered in blood and mud like it's our place to stay down here like this is the status quo i know what it's like but you can't do it you're not allowed to touch him um which i really i really like there but i agree that casca is the kind of as ever the weak link in this power dynamics and it's perhaps you know it does feel often to me anyway that especially like i couldn't help but see that after reading the interview i couldn't help but see the section through this kind of idea of of male relationships and teenage boys is that he seems very attuned to um male emotional relationships but seems very poorly attuned to female emotional relationships is what we kind mm-hmm. of see in this in this like next sequence that we roll into right because this all kind of closes off with this moment and we head into something new from here which is going out to the to the front and there's uh there's this kind of twee exchange of gifts uh between griffith and charlotte uh, and the suspicious queen but in reality we just we we head out to battle um and we're about to head into a, the, the kind of first real attention that we get given to casca um just before we do get there though or i guess it's that it does relate to it because he is just the dreadful misogynist um and also just a dreadful human which is the leader mr korbelovitz oh, the leader of the what are they called the blue <laughs> i was trying to find it quickly. adon head of the blue whale ultra heavy armored fierce assault <laughs> annihilation night corps you know my great-grandfather fought in that group in world <laughs> war one and he's the ha- last the last time they were fielded yeah yeah and he has a he has like a pure gustav dore like fish knight helmet like really just like goofy well, like a nineteenth like century, like Don Quixote kind of. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pure Don Quixote, exactly. But it's also like pure Japanese nineties pop culture, really. Like his moves mm-hmm. have names. That's what I. Yes. He, he. Yes. And it's obviously like Muir is obviously aware of this because you know we have the character saying, "Can you stop this? The ultimate spear technique, which can crush even marble, passed secretly down through my Kovalevitz <laughs> family for one." Hundred and forty years, and I love that. Later on, when he catches guts, he also says that there's a torture technique that has also been passed down 
through yeah. the cobble of its family. Everything has been always passed down through the cobble of its family. But he's also just a, a raging misogynist. Um, he sh- yeah, yeah he- which is yeah, sort of the default mode, I think, for everyone but Guts. Yeah, and it's kind of... It's so disappointing because we have this character who's put out here against Casca and he's just this miserable rich knight with a that shouts um ganza seppu which translates as rock cutting whirlwind when he tries to hit guts and you really want to see him put in his place but his misogyny towards casca is barely is it's kind of like now they both get knocked off a cliff by this guy and fall in some water and um then they of course because their clothes are wet the classic excuse um guts and casca then end up he saves casca from the water and takes her to a cave and takes her clothes off um and no what you do then we get a long extended scene now with with guts and casca where we get flashback through casca's history we also get a confrontation uh with guts and we'll get into the detail of the history and we also get then like a long battle scene that's all about guts protecting casca and throughout this section casca to me at least i don't know how you, how you felt about it but it just feels like she's constantly robbed of her agency or mm-hmm. her strength or her intelligence and the whole premise of the the sequence is that casca has her period and has a fever and therefore is unable to fight or walk or do many things and is constantly crying uh, in response to confrontation. And it's, yeah, it does it's, not play well. The way I think about all of this is that, so you have this um, character who, and this is just a very brief aside because my, my copy fell open to it. But there is a very good panel where they're like leaving for the front and there's a woman with, you know, a woman and a little girl and the woman has one leg missing. Yes. Watching this procession. Uh, that's just like a good, it's just good work right there. Yeah. It's very uh, bizarre. But, but bad work is, uh, so you have, you know, this, uh, what's his name again? Adon? Adon? Adon. Yeah. Adon Kobelovitz. It's like one of those very made up names that it's yeah. not, definitely not a real German name or whatever it's supposed to be. Um, but he's, so when he kind of corners Casca against the sort of side of this cliff, when they've, you know, in the very berserky way have kind of ended up being next to each other in the battle and fighting one-on-one, um, and he's taunting her, uh, when he's, you know, he's obsessed with the fact that she's a woman and he's telling her that she's not, uh, an equal to the rest of the soldiers and, um, you know, taunting his own men for getting beaten by a woman when they advance to attack her. Uh, and he says, you adorn yourself like a man, but you're quite the gem, aren't you? Um, and he, you know, the premise is that he's a bad person for a lot of reasons. He's extra bad because he doesn't see her as uh, a full equal to men. And then I think the next however many chapters or sort of the rest of what we cover here reinforces that he's right to yeah. say that because she is shown to be you know very tough you know she's so tough and she's so determined 
But at the end of the day, biologically, she is not equal to a man because, you know, and, and part of this stems from the like absolute like like a 12 year old writing about a woman getting her period where <laughs> yeah. she she's like, what is she like fainting? And then like she gets her fever, which is I think partially because she was in the river, but it's just old maids thinking of if you're in a cold river and then you get a cold. But it's like, you know, she has like just everything. She's essentially seems like she's about to die because she has her period. Yeah, which um, in the context of a of a comic which has guts, the man who can have every body bone in his body broken. And we will also see this, who will, you know, in in the following scene will kill a hundred people. And be stabbed multiple times as he do as he does, and get a arrow shot through his hand, and of course, you know, uses his teeth to uh, to use his sword previously, and you know, it, it's yeah, we it's a in, in the relative stakes of the uh, of the show uh, of the the manga, but it's also weird because guts almost. Like it's like there's some awareness here, right? Because like every time guts keeps getting yeah. punched by, um, Casca. And he's, he keeps being, Guts is always like, oh, that hurts so much in this like slightly patronizing way. Um, but in a way that feels like Miura trying to somehow be cool about this, even though he's obviously not. Um, and there's a bit where he's like, oh, it must be so hard being a woman. Like he has a, a moment of kind mm, of sympathy mm-hmm. for her that's so miserable. It's so like the teenage boy's attempt at being like, well, I'm a, I'm a cool guy. So, you know, I get it. Right. I get that you're on your period and therefore a useless, uh, hysterical, which is the word used in the translation, which talk about about a loaded word. You're, you're literally, I'm going to call you a hysterical bitch, but you know, um, I get it. Like I understand I'm a good guy. So, you know, I put some leaves on you and I, I wasn't funny about this, you know, like I didn't, I didn't rape you or anything. It's really miserable. The standards of masculinity in, in Berserk. Oh yeah. Uh, in, in relation to Casca. And also this whole, you know, Casca chapter one, we get like a, a pinup of Casca, which is to be expected in, in boys manga, I guess, um, removing her armor, but it's, it just contributes to the, yeah, the, the tone of the whole thing, which is, yucky as hell well yeah and i mean the way she's she's drawn throughout this is and you can tell you know um that she's like very strategically uncovered by his big uh his pink cut off uh, cut off sleeve shirt that he likes to wear yeah for some reason she forgets how to wear a shirt um and yeah it yeah, treats it as yeah, and it's some kind of like peep show situation where the various armholes and yeah, and it you know it's it's Miura showing the same obsession with drawing Zod's furry biceps as he's now showing with drawing Casca's body, really. Yeah, which is sort of you know it's 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 a, a level of I don't know. You have this tension here where he wants to explore this character like as a character he also wants to just make her like a sex object on the page yeah he also 
wants to say she is an extraordinarily tough person on on par with guts who can relate to him with uh what he's been through and then he also has to couch that though in she's tough even though her period is like debilitating you know she's tough in despite it like she's she's tough for a woman kind of like it's it's very i don't know it's you can see he's like kind of trying but he's but he's sort of existing within a mode where yeah it he doesn't i don't know it's it's not good it's (laughs) no and it it really really, unfortunately as well i think it robs a lot of because actually like the pure script of this it's not not like berserk is ever going to be regarded for the the literal script of it itself but it it is like this section is like like you say it's an attempt at exploring this character and a history that 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 might lead to this character um being as she is um and it kind of like feels like there is something there you could that could be interesting but it's it's so backgrounded um with the visual backup of the of like her body just repeatedly shown in in like different poses and it's yeah I think it's, you know, that's typical for, for boys manga. I always think of like, uh, I'm a big um, fan of uh, Wandering Island, um, which is I don't know that. Uh, Kenji Tsuruta's, um manga. He also did Eminon. Um, and he loves to just have a female character and just draw them over and over again usually wearing like a sweater and jeans and but sometimes not wearing any clothes at all and that's all that like some of that like wandering island is just draw like incredibly beautiful drawings over and over again of like japanese island towns as this character silently explores them um and this you know it kind of it's obviously boys manga but it also kind of takes the boy the idea of like the female body in boys manga to a certain kind of extreme of artistry and affection and almost like worship that is that feels kind of distinct and interesting and and hard to put your finger on exactly what's what it is because it's it's yeah it's very odd and unusual while i i felt like here it's just it just feels like that you know that awful word that is overused but like fan service right it's it's just there it 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 seems to expose casca as a character who is only there to serve this purpose which i don't think is true um but it but it gives that impression but it yeah it gives that impression and that undercuts any like i i always i, I just feel with casca that like any opportunity for her to rise above this is con she's constantly dragged back down um yeah by the by the book she's constantly put into positions that that also feel totally out of character right like she's she oscillates between being incredibly strong-headed and being suddenly very scared for example in the fight scenes we see coming up right she's shown to be incredibly competent and then immediately she's like oh i don't know what i'm gonna do this guy is far too strong for me um well I understand this idea that Guts is the most powerful fighter among all of the people in the entire world of Berserk, right? Like, there is no one is as strong as him. The The people she is fighting are explicitly always men. And they are, mm-hmm. you know, and so any kind of element of her being 
um, of her being in combat always relates to her being a woman. She's never allowed to be anything else, right? She's she's always a woman in relation to men, and that is yeah. that is the kind of position that she forever occupies, and and ultimately will come to define her, right? Like as a character when we get to the the eventual end point of this. But yeah, like yeah. it's just it's very it's, well, it's hard not to feel constantly disappointed by it because there is the kind of gestures out away from that but Muir is just not able to to manifest that well it's interesting too like uh, what you said about um sorry i can't was it called wandering island wandering island yeah um and, and what you talk about when you mentioned he kind of is drawing her like he's drawing zod like he's he's really having a good time drawing a naked woman and the thing is, like, and he also, you know, he has a great time drawing demons. He has a great time drawing, like, <laughs> the, like, absurd musculature of guts. You know, he he has a great time drawing a lot of these different things. And, I mean, there's a, you know, as old as art itself, fascination with the human body, right? And drawing the human body and, uh the naked human body as like, you know, an, an enormous interest in terms of just sheer aesthetics. And the difference here is that the context is like, it, it's like when people say like, oh, well, you know, if, if you don't, it's, it's prudish to, to not be okay with that or something with, you know, how she's depicted here and in other parts of the story. But if she was like had the equivalent of the scene with you know uh, Griff is standing naked and tossing the water around, it's not really a problem, right? It's like it's it's when it's sort of the physicality of the character undermines her her just standing as a character. It also reminds you that she's fictional, like very it, it undermines the idea of her as being sort of a personality he wants to explore. It. it grounds her in the body like very directly um at a time when when you you're supposed to be kind of focused on on her interiority um and i think like that's that's the big issue is especially here it's just like contextually this is this is her big moment this is the uh chapters that are named after her and this is like her her outing uh to where we're really finally after you know meeting her all these volumes back where we're we know what she's about and and this is what we get right it's i don't know it's it's like you said it's like it's just pretty miserable it's just um yeah yeah. it's just sort of like a a deep-rooted thing and part of it might be format for how this was sold but you know the end result is is what it is yeah totally and i you know i agree like i don't think that i I don't have any problem with with her being a naked female body in this story because you know guts is also like guts is hot in um in many panels as is as is griffith right like we we you know in the flashback here we get this kind of griffith with the the kind of aesthetically positioned water like halfway down his buttocks right like he you know like he is he is like muir is interested in in p- 
people's bodies and in physicality and in things looking sexy and in things looking violent and and the combination of those two um Mm -hmm. you know to his to his fault right but that is that you know that's part of the the overall interest in like what he wants to draw here but yeah that's not at the end of the day that's not my problem with casca it's the it's the way that she is undermined and the the yeah like her body is just one of the the ways in which she is undermined really um it is the entire framing of this sequence and the 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 way in which her yeah her agency is kind of robbed of her i think is it it just feels part of that and so the 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 depictions of her kind of reinforce that over and over again um but yeah but but you know from here um Mura goes into his next obsession which is uh drawing men getting chopped up um and well no we we do have and as much as i would like to just skip over and pretend it oh yeah part of it, we, you're right we have her origin story which i think is tr- the right. absolute nadir of what we're talking about it is you know we learned that she grew up on uh, a board she grew up in a border town um s- daughter of six youngest daughter of of parents who were farmers six children uh, a local lord's passing by um he sees her and approaches her parents and says i'd like to buy her as like a maid sir a castle maid uh, father was reluctant but he agreed and then once she's on the road with him he attempts to rape her and uh she's 12 at this point and we see her nude uh or with her shirt ripped open which is like fucking stomach turning and then griffith comes by and saves her and tells her that she needs throws her a sword and says if you want to if you want to take charge of things then you can kill this guy and you can come with me basically or you can kill this man yourself and sort of take your power and she does that and then she says can i come with you and he sort of protects her and says like you can do what you want if that means coming with me then you're allowed to um so aside from the visual aspect of this which is like fucking appalling um that you know this this character is 12 years old and is turned into a sexual object like not by the villain of this necessarily but by the uh by mira as well um in sort of these like cheesecake shots of you know uh, sexual assault against a child which is like just fucking appalling um you also have the framing of her character um that sort of from the first time she's set out into the world and her beginning of her kind of understanding of griffith and her relationship to her own power through violence um has to be couched in in rape is i don't know like it's obviously something that's going to come up again and again and sexual assault is always going to be sort of the you know it's the nuclear option for uh kind of making something disturbing and and dark and you know we had that with guts already yeah exactly we have it again but i think there's there's quite a difference and i guess you know if if you want to be a real pedant you could say i think you see uh guts like i think there's full frontal nudity of him in as a child and that stuff but 
you, you look at these things and how they're portrayed it's one is presented as like something that you know is is designed to be sexual and one is designed as nudity to um i was gonna say communicate vulnerability but i think both are intertwined with what's going on with casca here as well but yeah this this stuff i think is like just sick i mean it just feels like miura being like what can i do with this character who's female well i mean i'm you know he's constantly threatening her with rape anyway in in terms of like what other characters say to her right like that Mm -hmm. is that is a constant threat in berserk from everybody you know in a lot of contexts but like we just had this the guy um saying oh if i catch you then you know you'll be the plaything of my men and we've had that before as well with casca and yeah and then we get like this this as you say and you're right like i I think i just glaze over it because i'm just so not i don't so not interested in it um but that's that's also it's important to point out that it exists and it's here and it's you know Mira put it in um and yeah I, i think you're right and i think it just but it does feel like there's some mirroring with with guts here but in a way mm-hmm. that i think is not um beneficial because in, it, then it kind of feels like well can you have a character who wasn't raped in their origin story you know what i mean like what what are we like it's it, and i do think that there isn't i still for me I, I find that connecting again to this fear of sex uh this kind of teenage fear of sex because obviously rape is used extensively in in fiction as the kind of as you say nuclear option for for female characters but i think it's interesting that mura uses it also for male characters because not only do we have guts guts as rape we're also just about to get um griffith uh mm-hmm. and uh, a pedophile lord that he's working for and griffith um being paid to sleep with the with the pedophile lord and then um, we have this kind of yeah like the scene in the river where we have a very again sexualized body of griffith and griffith um like tearing at his own arm because he's so distressed from having done this thing but it was necessary for his great ascent to to um his kingdom um and so like we have all of these characters here you know, if we step back from just the, the yeah, like, the, the just the shittiness of this, but just the thematic, like, structuring here, I found really, like, really fascinating just in terms of what it's telling us about this story, that these, that sex is actually, and with all this violence, like, sex is really the point, the, the like, point of um, change or, like, distress, right? It's It's always this point of distress and this point of fear. Um, and this this terrifying presence uh, in the narrative, um, and obviously that's manifested through rape. But even with Griffith, it's managed. It's manifested mm-hmm. through a kind of maybe consensual sex, but also kind of non consensual sex in the sense that Griffith doesn't want to have sex with this man. Right? That's the that's the he's doing it for the power. And so it, it, there's all these different forms of non consensual sex, which just yeah, for it it just it's kind of unusual but obvious i guess that the teenage mentality and the boys manga is this like desire to put to start berserk let's remember that berserk starts with a sex scene right with a demon Mm -hmm. so to have sex right there and to and to have female characters 
um, you know, appearing naked and to have male characters appearing naked and to have sexualized bodies all the time. But then for sex to be trauma constantly um, throughout the story and constantly be the the way of twisting the knife uh, in these characters. It's just like, a, yeah, it's a very particular contradiction that's that's happening. But Casca, of course, being the female character, gets the worst of it, right? Like she gets the least, she gets the most problematic and disturbing depiction. She gets the least um, agency in that encounter. And um, yeah, like that's, but that in a way is just consistent with, with his treatment of Casca as a character, which is, um, you know, which is just constantly undermining her. So, but yeah, I just, I just thought that would like, because we, yeah, this very unusual Griffith origin story, which again, feels kind of unnecessary. I don't like, I don't know what it really adds to this character and it's kind of an aside. Um, and well, yeah, I think it's the, the saving grace of this stuff, I would say. And, and I do think he is using like sort of all sex aside from the, the demon sex, which I think if you look back on that, both of them are having a great time. <laughs> He's going to send it to heaven before he sends it to hell. Is what he right. says. So it's only clearly when she he turns into a demon, and then the sort of conditions have changed. Yeah, he and kept... then things go wrong, and neither are traumatized. It's just like, well, she's just a dead demon. Be... But yeah, yeah, and she—that's what she was doing. She was just being a demon. <laughs> yeah, doing. guts being have been. He, you know, while Griffith was studying the blade, he was studying the Kama Sutra. So and the blade, <laughs> and the bl- and the blade simultaneously <laughs> together. Um, what I was going to say though is like I. I do think there are uh, that stuff. I think the idea that all sexuality is, is traumatic, I think does change. And I think it will change in a way that we'll talk about in the next episode, but is very much there. I think the things Griffith has done it. I don't understand fully why being paid to have sex with a, a disgusting person is, is, the thing that leaves him, you know, uh, you know, doing the the archetypal like can't get clean until I scratch the skin yeah, from yeah. my arms kind of thing in the river. Um, but I think the the saving grace of all of this stuff is that I do think there is like the primary interest in in sex and this stuff is is sort of like a facet of adulthood that is used as a power dynamic upon these vulnerable characters and how as they get older it's like twisted and turned in different ways upon them which we'll see in you know the the end of the the flashback stuff it kind of culminates in a way but there is something interesting in i feel like i'm just calling everything something interesting but um, (laughs) (laughs) but i i do think there is something going on the entire time about the way that these characters, like the the, sort of the main trio here have been forced to use their sexuality or have it used or have others sexuality used against them as part of the levers of power that all of this is about, you know, um, the fact that, uh, and I will say too, I think with, with guts, the one thing that is interesting and is maybe atypical for, where this stuff falls into like kind of like boys empowerment trope stuff for a lot of it. It's like, he's, 
you know, your star, like tough motherfucker character whose origin story starts with him being raped. Yeah. And it's progresses from there. And he, he sort of, you know, his, his, a lot of his coming of age story is him getting over that or not, not getting over it, but, but learning how to. Yeah. Dealing with intimacy. Right. Like it's the, I don't, don't touch me. He like there is a trauma of intimacy there, and I think you're right to point out you you and you kind of talked about it earlier as well because you were saying that like the battle scenes are you know you were saying the battle scenes are not really like the crux right like the crux is like how do people hurt each other um, in intimate ways um, and yeah like that feels like also part of that kind of basing it on friend groups or friends you know that's the tension there right it's like is the is the intimate violence is is the violence of that that changes things and that is disturbing and and betrayals um and so yeah it's i agree that there's some kind of there is some kind of consistency or exploration happening there like he muir is being critical um on some level not to let him off the hook entirely. I just think, no, I get you it. know. I mean, this is stuff we were talking about with like the very on the very first episode of this too. Like, there's stuff I find throughout Berserk, like, just extremely disgusting and like kind of reprehensible. And yet, I think as a whole, it's it's like a pretty remarkable work in that. <sighs> I think it can be so disappointing in like a like bone deep kind of like like fuck this dude entirely kind of way but then he also is showing something else going on as well and it's it, it just you know I think this is the first time in, in, since we've been reading these that something has come up that's like very uh, viscerally disturbing disgusting um not intentionally i don't think yeah that's like that's kind of like why i'm thinking about like the back and forth of of what he's accomplishing versus what is happening here that's no good yeah for sure yeah and i i think you know with the casca especially that that rape scene it's just it it doesn't move the needle on in terms of like we don't need those panels right in that way that's the it's gratuitous in the in the true meaning of the word gratuitous as in unnecessary Mm -hmm. right like it that's that's where it falls um unlike some other stuff where yeah i mean we'll get into but it's kind of that there are different elements of that but i think what i feel more attuned to is also like the more like the underlying politics or tensions or, or that that are also going on behind that which meant that i kind of flinched more strongly at the way in which the the pedophile character um felt like another connection between homosexuality and perversion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. which feels to me like inc- incredibly crude and and dull uh, and tired yeah. and ignorant and i don't like i don't really it, and it just it's maybe you know there's a few too many ticks in that column right like uh with guts's rape as well and it it just kind of yeah, it get it, it wears you down a bit when you read it, and you're like, "Oh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in here." But can we just like just tone it down with like these structures? Because this is a, you know, whether or not I don't think it's intentional, right? I don't think Muir is. Um, 
I don't think Muir is homophobic, but he is reproducing homophobic narrative um, ideas that we can, yeah, we can point to uh, and say, yeah, okay, this is something that like, and maybe he's picking them up from places. Maybe he's, but he is responsible for his work. But yeah, I, I, um, that's where I, I, I equally feel myself just kind of being frustrated by the need to roll out those kind of connections between uh, sexuality and perversion in in such a like yeah tedious and cool yeah. way. Um, but yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I think that's completely fair, and you know, it's. I think where I always come down on these things is for me the thing that's so disappointing is is when you have someone who uh, like a lot of the buy-in for uh for art that you are enjoying you know on a, on a certain level on, on stuff that you care to really think about i think a lot uh, part of the buy-in is like identifying with the not identifying with the art but being able to like see a humanism in the art like a yeah. the artist's ability to care about another person and especially when they're caring about someone they made up you know um the idea that this person is communicating um something common in humanity that is that's there and then when you have characters dehumanized uh through stereotyping and and you know, like literal kind of objectification, which may sound funny because they're all objects on the page, but like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, it's just, you know, it's turning the lights on in the theater and saying like, okay, like (laughs) you can't, you can't be along as much as you want to. Um, When, when someone is, is saying like, care about these humans, uh, you know, identify with them in some way and, and feel for them also some of them aren't as human as other uh and, and not because of like monstrous actions but it's, it's something inborn in them makes them less than um yeah i, I think that's sure. like that's the stuff that, that gets me and is is what makes it so just always so fucking disappointing right i think it becomes an interesting question though in works which engage specifically with cruelty and pain occurring to characters and i I find it very interesting to see what feels like reading Berserk to feel what feels okay or what feels like acceptable cruelty and what doesn't. And I think those that's also really interesting, like how those things play out, right? Like what we feel mm-hmm. is because these, these at the end of the day, these characters are all going to be treated horribly by Mura. Um, and, and so I always just think there's an interesting thing in like what you know in the experience of the person writing it and the person reading it it's like how stories play out where there is extreme levels of cruelty towards characters and why is it that and so it often does feel for me like it's all about the relationship to external power structures in a way it's like things outside Mm. of the story which tend to impact on it it's like our knowledge it's our understanding of of patriarchy and the political it's not the particulars necessarily although i think they are bad in terms of casca or griffith maybe or um but it it it's also about how those relate to a wider politics that that we are part of in the world you know and and when it kind of reaches out and touches on those things um and because you know we're not always aware of those right and especially 
um if you're if you're maybe younger like when i was a teenager i would read berserk and like my response to the levels of what i considered to be acceptable or unacceptable would be totally different um and so it's such a it's such a, a relative thing and i yeah i i'm also um yeah, it's it's just been fascinating to while I've been reading Berserk to then re-navigate right through these these mm-hmm. kind of situations and be like, what I what is it that I'm comfortable with and why am I uncomfortable with it and why is it that certain things feel appropriate to the character or to the narrative and other things feel gratuitous or or external and it it's not such a simple process and it's it's a yeah it's a quite a complex um, part of how you put yourself in a story as you say. And, and where you feel yourself being and um yeah like uh just yeah finding those wanting to find things in characters that that are there but also wanting to find things that are not and also being aware that characters are going to fall short or or cross over with your expectations but but yeah yeah and, and i don't mean that in terms of um i hope it didn't like i i miscommunicated if i made it sound like I don't think I don't want to identify with the character in terms of being like they're a good person. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I no, like them. Sure. I, I want to, it's more like identifying with like, like a humanity. In yeah. Them. Like, no, I think you're right. I think, yeah. I think it some is. Some of my favorite stories are, are stories about like reprehensible people, like terrible people. Yeah. For and sure. I think part of that is like the ability to, the desire to like explore different aspects of like a common humanity, which I think Griffith as a character at his best is, is part of that is an exploration of, of sort of like a, an id of a very modern type of person, I think. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what I mean by it. it. But yeah, so it's like you say, like when it, it is like external politics, I guess that like kind of, or, or, you know, our understanding of politics and of kind of also meeting more and more people the older you get and having a wider understanding of the world and and sort of having the frame of reference for like a, a certain kind of empathy and like a very general broad sense of empathy extend, I think is... I don't know, Christ. This is such it's such a complicated topic. Yeah, for um, sure. I don't know. It, it's like a big part of <laughs> why I wanted to talk about Berserk though, which is like why I'm like uh, it's not really good to be like, hey, it's really complicated. Um, so let's <laughs> let's stick a pen in it. But I, I do think that that question of cruelty and and sort of like what you can see a, a character deal with is because there's such a fine line and you don't want to make the like you know it's pornography like i don't know what how to define pornography but i know it when i see it kind of of thing in terms of cruelty because that's it's a failure of of criticism and um but it's in that case it it structures of power right like power is so it's such an important part of that or agency perhaps is the better mm -hmm. word or or consent or all of those words that relate to each other right and that's where that for me seems to be this the point and i don't know yeah like it's about what those power what power is manifesting through the characters and through the narrative and not just like the power as in this character is now in power 
but in terms of like who's given the page space, who's given the words, who gets to dictate this situation, who gets to speak here, who mm-hmm. doesn't get to speak, right? Like that's how, like when this, to, to just say, um, you know, this character is raped, it, it doesn't express in reality the the power relations that are occurring in that moment, right? Because they're constructed from all of the buildup and everything around it. And, and so it becomes a very, I think that's why it's so complicated. And I think, you know, and there's always that knowledge in the back of your head that while we're critiquing Mura, I, I always feel like, but he surely loved these characters more than anybody else, right? Like mm-hmm. he would be, I'm sure, very unhappy to think that he'd failed Casca as a character. I'm sure that's something that bothered bothered him and perhaps it, it bothers him, you know, it perhaps it bothered him looking back at this work, right? Perhaps that's a failing that he was aware of or perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps, you know, perhaps his views are that that, that was an appropriate way to, to, to treat that character. But I generally feel that creators, you know, they spend so much more time with, with characters than we do and I think it's worth remembering that not that that means they're infallible but just that yeah, it's well, not no, it's there's... not always as simple as like yeah, this is just shitty. Like it it's there's a there's a striving and I think if Berserk has anything for me, it definitely in these first volumes that we've been through already, it's a striving for something. Like it really feels like Muir is reaching for something. He's chasing after something constantly. Um, yeah, 100%. And, which is really I think what makes them them really rewarding to read and really really rewarding to read and talk about in the way that we have because you you can feel that you can feel that and it gives an energy to the work um, and you can see him developing and you can see him picking up new ideas and feeding things in and bringing in personal material and it, he's definitely eager for Berserk to be something great right something that yeah, he would yeah. be happy with that he can put his name on and say this is what i do um that there's a real eagerness than that he's not phoning it in at any point yeah which you you see and i think people pointed out a lot too when they <clears throat> talk about berserk and they say that you know it starts off looking incredible and then look at what it looked like at the end you know and that's like a very technical uh distillation of of what that is but like it's part of what makes an ongoing like serialized story that that you know that Mira worked on for decades, so fascinating is that's a lot of time to be a person and to to uh, for your opinions about things to change you know evolve or not and you know there's there's always going to be that gap between uh, understanding or intent and execution you know I think anyone who makes any kind of art is is incredibly familiar. I think it's something that keeps a lot of people from making art. Is yeah, is you can picture in your mind what you want to do and what you're trying to do, and who these characters are, and then who they are when they're getting in front of the reader. It could be, you know, it, it's like you said. It, it it sort of doesn't matter what he thought about it because you have to go through what the work is here. But I think when we talk about like things where it's like you have strong reactions to the person who put the pen on the page for this stuff. Um, it's, it's worth thinking at times uh, about how attitudes change. I mean, like you said before, and how true is it when it's, it's guts, you know, ramming the sword 
into that kid and, and the the panels that show both of their faces and their reaction to it versus sad guts you know like yeah like a lot of like some of what's going on there is very similar um you see a lot of the stuff from the the first few volumes popping up again and it's almost like mira just being like okay now i know how to do it so here let me try <laughs> yeah 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 like let me do um, this beat again which is you know i i think it's it is something worth considering when you look at kind of kind of how a lot of things are portrayed at this point and especially casca not to say that you know she's going to become this three-dimensional character who uh is is you know an all-time great or something but she you know it anyway i feel like i'm defending and i also worry too about then saying this kind of stuff and being like well i like berserk so i'm trying to make reasons for why i like it. <laughs> um, no but you have reasons to like it right and we're figuring we're figuring that out that's what i think is happening here but i yeah and i think we're you know I think this, this is, is my therapy session. No, it, it yeah, it's part, <laughs> sure. sure. If, if we can, you know, if a podcast can be as something as useful as a therapy session, then let's take it. But um, <laughs> the <laughs> that's a peak for us. But um, yeah, I, I think that this is going to come back again and again. Um, oh yeah, for absolutely. us for sure. And I think that this is yeah. I found this this to be like a very engaging part of it, and. Um, you know, I think just to this subject really is I'm gonna I'm gonna leap over this hundred person fight, but you know, he dear listener, people. he kills a hundred people in a lot of cool ways. Let's just say that. Let's just say that like he slices the, a, a man in whale armor. In half. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of joy <laughs> in the killing of a hundred people. It's it's filled with just like. Yeah, Mura's ours. And and the a whale guy turns up, a giant whale guy called Samson, who is called he's like kind of a, a big fucking galoot who's like <laughs> I think like comes out and is like, You me kill man? It's like yeah. his brother or something. Yeah, and his the the guy calls him by going, Samson, oh Samson. <laughs> and then Samson turns up and says, Yeah, bro. <laughs> so, he also makes the bsh noise. I don't know what that even is. Uh, it's like him letting off steam, I guess. Yeah. I that's the only thing that made sense. Or he's like doing whale cosplay. Whale noises. And he goes out of the way. Uh yeah. yeah. He's just a heavy from a video game. Like he's just a boss. It's fa- it's fantastic. Uh and there's an incredible panel where um where the guy's ball and chain just gets chopped into a million pieces by Oh yeah. It's excellent. And a load of people uh yeah, a lot of people get hit by bits of it, and it just goes on and on. It's just just hundreds of people being chopped up with with joy. There is another. Hakaska then gets threatened with rape again, uh, but I feel that we've said enough about that. Really. And the one thing here is, I was expecting, you know, they, they're caught out at this place where they're recovering, and then they're ambushed by the opposing army, and that's why Guts is killing a hundred guys. Yeah, <laughs> they found them and. <clears throat> and eventually he convinces Casca to to run and try to get back to Griffith um, and he's going to fight these guys until he can't anymore um, which is sort of him you know explicitly protecting someone uh, so you kind of know that help is going to be on its way at some point Casca is threatened with uh, rape here 
and you expect i think griffith to come charging and save her because it's looking very helpless uh and the one thing i do like is she does get a little bit of her own she does take care of it herself she grabs a stick and stabs the dude right in the eyeball yeah eyeballs always Uh, eyeballs with muir help comes right after that but i i think there is at least some i think if it was you know the a shower of arrows comes as as the band of the hawk catches up with them but i think if it was just that like arrows raining down it, it would have been a little more disappointing that she is so incapable yeah um yeah for sure anyway. but yeah but what i wanted to roll into while we have time because we're running a mm-hmm. little maybe a little long here um but can i say one more thing about the hundred man fight the only yeah please there's remember i mentioned before about how a lot of stuff is like it seems like mira must have been influenced a lot by um christ i can't remember the author's name now um but the author who wrote the the book musashi which was serialized in yeah. japan in the 30s and i think early 40s or might have been done by the 40s um but is sort of like you know the archetypal samurai and it was uh, very important to sort of like romantic japanese nationalism uh with all the implications that has and like the wandering ronin kind of character and guts being this sort of like uh originally this wandering ronin slash cowboy slash you know all those kind of archetypes rolled up and there is specifically a part at the end of um at the end of Oh, I guess it's in the film adaptation, but uh, in, in the book where Musashi kills a hundred dudes in a forest, he gets tricked. He thinks he's going to a duel, if I'm remembering right. And he ends up killing a hundred dudes. And it's like part of his legend. And right. this, having like read that last last fall and seeing this again now, I was like, oh, this is this is exactly what this is. This is him sort of like, uh showing this great you know this is the extent of his prowess and this is like his legend is he has to kill these hundred guys in the forest and um anyway it's kind of like a an aside that doesn't go anywhere but i just thought it was sort of interesting to see again that you know what seemed to me to be that influence like having a pretty strong pull on like martial heroism in yeah this story yeah well uh, off the back of this guts perhaps different to his other fights is kind of like, I mean, he has these lines, right? Like what the hell am I doing in this dumb place risking my life so cheaply? Uh, is it for her? No, probably not. Like he, he starts to get wise, right? To like, okay, I'm going to kill a hundred yeah. dudes, but like, why am I killing a hundred dudes again? Like, what? well, and this is, this is part of what made me think of that as well Is you know, he's, he says the thing about like, I, I, don't have any purpose here other than like all i can see in front of me is like swinging my sword around and eventually all it's going to be is my heartbeat uh and and just like this this sort of primal instinctual will to survive that is nothing more than just doing what you're doing because it's the only thing you can do and musashi thinks the same way it's it's like the legend of you know when he he um learns to fight with two swords which is like his his trademark thing is he i think the christ i have such a bad memory i read this last fall but he (laughs) 
picks you know the samurais where samurai wear the two swords the short sword and the yeah. long one and then he takes out the short one as he's fighting because he's so tired and he's been fighting for so long and he's just moving on instinct and then he develops that and it's the same kind of like philosophical warrior moment of you know i am nothing but limbs uh sort of flailing around like killing everyone trying to kill me and it's very very much sort of the same uh triumph over <laughs> over in, in you know incredible odds and, and emerging like as a legend afterward yeah totally i know it is the making of of the guts legend but in a way it's also um there's this kind of weirdness about like well if i'm not afraid for my life and i can't die because i'm the protagonist why am i fighting people you know there's like almost this kind of artificial unusual element to that as well that like it's not her it's not heroic i mean it's cool and it's made to look incredibly cool but it's also kind of like by the end he's like well this is you know it's it's like he's playing the video game of his life and he's like why am i playing this video game you know like why have i just killed these hundred dudes yeah he's playing the berserk uh like dinosaur warriors exactly right he's like why am i still why am i still doing this (laughs) And that leads to the to a very introspective um introspective sequence called the campfire or bonfire of dreams. Um which actually that kind of like confusion in the translation is quite good because the theme is kind of is this a campfire conversation between Guts and Casca? Or is it a conversation about the the bonfire that is Griffith and everybody is putting their dreams in in um Griffith? And um there's this interesting thing I think that feels I felt was like, yeah, I mean, maybe you, you'll all get bored of me talking about this. But the um, there's this moment where Guts says when they're talking about Griffith and who's gathered around him and Griffith is this blazing inferno and everybody's got a little dream. Um, and, that you know, we've previously had like uh, this incredible we missed over it, but this incredibly ridiculous self-important moment earlier where Griffith where a young boy dies in Griffith's army. This is in Casca's flashback. And Griffith says, oh, he died for my dream. Um, this is, the, yeah. you know, this is what my dream is about. And my dream is so powerful that when people around me die, they die for my dream. They don't die for their own dreams because I've absorbed their dreams. Like it's, it's, it's kind of like a real megalomaniac, narcissistic moment. Um, and I think in comparison, we get Guts here saying, I'm just warming myself by the campfire for a bit. Maybe I stopped him by a chance. And the image that accompanies that is a campfire image of him with all the band of the Hawk crew having a drink and just kind of chilling out, but also looking kind of, um, looking kind of like at odds with them, right? Like, so there's this interesting evaluation of Guts kind of saying like, oh, I don't have a dream here, but like what I'm getting from this is is actually intimacy, is other people around me and is is friendship. And again, it just feels like this is this is um this is Muris like feeling like the outsider in his friend group, feeling like Pippin, right? Like just hanging around, staying quiet, but maybe I'm just it, it feels like maybe he's putting his words in Guts's mouth. I know I'm projecting here, but there's just a just a sense of like, oh, you know. I, I, I'll be part of this for a moment and then it will pass, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy it while it exists. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a fun, 
it's a fun scene and we don't really get too much that like Casca is kind of given a bit more space and a bit of an opportunity to talk a little more here. Um, and she gets to be more of a, just a, a person who he's talking to. But unfortunately is... at the end of the scene, guts then slaps her on the butt. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, but that's, yeah, it's fine. It's within the world of, of it's like, like a little Charlie Brown. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not great, but I think <laughs> relative to everything just... else we've had. <laughs> just in comparison it, it seems like kind of innocuous um but this is actually oh sorry no no go ahead i was gonna say that the part actually and i'm glad you brought it up again too with griffith um and and the boy fighting his army who dies and, and sort of subsumed into his dream uh was actually what i was thinking about with the the way it's contrasted um and also casca uh being the child who um with guts killing the uh, Adonis and him for him, it being sort of a, a big moment of crisis and something that changes his relationship to Griffith and the band of the Hawk and sort of helps him start thinking about himself as, you know, it leads him to this conversation where he's, he's thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of part of this thing for now, or I'm, I'm near it. Um, it's not my actual dream. And, you know, the difference to that of Griffith um, causing a child's death and saying, like, it's it's not that big a deal. Like, he, you know, no one forced him to be here and he gave himself to my to my ends. Um, yeah, which is a kind of, as you say it there, it just occurred to me, it's like a mirror of guts in Black Swordsman being like, you know, don't someone who gets killed for somebody else's uh, struggle is an idiot, right? Like that, he says mm-hmm. that early on. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but just as you mentioned it, it just kind of struck me that there's that, that there's guts is maybe parroting Griffith there, which is probably not Mura being incredibly clever about his plotting, but is instead perhaps just Mura kind of chewing this idea around right in his head as he's as he's working on this thing is like coming back again and again to this idea of dying for somebody else's dream and and the the value in that and the different kind of perspectives on leadership and authority and adoration that he's he's running through and again and again yeah and i think then when you have him here when you have guts articulating sort of his you know for now this is kind of his ideology is he's now a leader of men um and he's also following a leader of men and and when he thinks about these things like his you know i'm an ember that's kind of next or i'm warming myself by this fire and we're all sort of part of something larger than ourselves and when he thinks of the people who follow him you know he says he he talks about his buddy gaston uh and or his his second in command and he talks about his troops and how they you know, the different dreams they have of getting married or starting a shop and so forth and so on. And, and Guts very much sees himself as sort of like part of a greater collective, whereas Griffith we're coming to see, sees himself as like, you know, he's, he's the totalitarian leader of this collective. It's becoming like more articulated what, you know, when you look at like Mira saying that everyone kind of, 
beyond the basic urge to survival, what motivates us is, is wanting to accomplish something that's larger than we may ever accomplish. And that is kind of the basic fact that he lays out. And then he has people like the character like Guts, who is presented as kind of good as being like, this doesn't come, this can't come at the expense of other people. It has to come alongside people. And Griffith being having the same motivation and saying this will come ultimately at the expense of people who who follow me. And I think that's like gonna be one of the big good versus evil. Um and his kind of philosophical outlook on power that gets articulated more and more as this goes on. Yeah. And I think this is very interesting in the context of a work which we now know to be a great project, right? That took ambition from Yura. Mm -hmm. But it, clearly from from also from his kind of tone of talking about it and his way of articulating it, it was ambition was certainly not doesn't seem to be the way something he believes in. He seems to believe in something else, um, which, yeah, like it might also relate to intimacy. There's certainly like the sense of intimacy of gathering around the fire, fire together or. And so I, I find that fascinating when you have this kind of we're looking at this epic, right? And we're about to we're, we ourselves are embarking on the epic of a um, of talking about a 40 volume manga series that someone created for most of their life the majority of their life was spent working on this and they shunned pretty much all other projects apart from a few other smaller collaborations uh to do this thing and yet the the overriding feeling right now is like sacrifice is not worth it um it it, it wasn't it, it's not worth it to to have a great dream uh it's better to to be not to be used as well. I think there's a sense that like guts in a way because his suggestion is he's going to lead the, leave the band of the hawk is like maybe it's not good for him to be used by somebody else to achieve a great dream. But he seems to be happy to be used by those beneath him as a tool of violence that might achieve their nonviolent outcomes. Right? Like he's mm. happy mm -hmm. to keep fighting so that so that his second in command can can start a farm or can give up the mercenary job altogether. Like, he's happy to keep fighting. He's not driven by that, um, but he's happy for himself to be part of that process. Uh, but then there's clearly some skepticism, which, as you say, comes from him being used as a tool by Griffith, that he's become now skeptical of the idea that that a great end is anything other than folly. Um, and yeah, it's fascinating. I do, have to, I, I do have to admit that I found it incredibly funny... Um, the panel of um, Griffith leaning over that boy and it's very dramatic, typical Griffith style, constantly in sunlit kind of view and with a there's a misty version of himself in the sky and he's leaning over this boy and it says maybe my dream is what killed this boy and I couldn't help but think of that like anime frame of the, the guy with the butterfly, oh. you know, being like, is this a, you know, because it's just, it's like the narcissists, like, it's like the most perfect example of narcissism, right? It's like, it's like a, this boy has just died and he's like, maybe this is about me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a slaughtered child on a battlefield. Hmm. What does this have to say about my dream? Did my dream do this? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah 
but yeah, we we end at the philosophical um, philosophical campfire of dreams. There, I mean, there's a little post thing about a big castle, but all I'll say, <laughs> right, yeah, all I'll say is that don't make sure you if you've made it through this two and a half hour podcast, make sure you come back next week because where this podcast stops right now is the moment at which the holy purple rhino knights arrive. And if that's, <laughs> that's not what you're interested in, then you, you shouldn't be reading Berserk or listening to this podcast. Th- that's the um, that's the the last page is Tudor's most powerful days. <laughs> Which I think goes some way that, you know, the House of Tudor was, if you've read your Shakespeare and your history books, was famously established by um the holy purple rhino knights <laughs> great um they had a great season in 2020 remember, the holy purple rhino when knights. henry v came out on the battlefield with his holy purple rhino knights no i think that was the blue oh god i wish i could remember it off by heart the Ooh. blue whale annihilation <laughs> assault knight squad or whatever they're called. that's 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 actually a redo the war of the roses between uh, i just it's wonderful it's like i feel like they need team songs and yeah it's it's wonderful we did we did compliment muir on being a student of history previously but perhaps that was a bit um preemptive well no they existed (laughs) (laughs) i read a book about them once i'll lend it to you it's really fascinating (laughs) It's about the uh, torture and uh, flail techniques of uh, a royal German house. Yeah. Um, okay, anything... I hope there's not anything else you want to get to because there's a lot of podcast. No, I think we're good, but that was that was more than enough for me. I had my fill of, of Berserk for now, but there was there's more to come, right? There, there is no. so much more yeah. to come. So... We are committed to not doing this podcast for 40 years. So next time we are going to blaze on ahead, continuing ahead, um, just given the pace of kind of what's coming up, we are going to, uh, we left off sort of partway through volume seven. We're going to go volume seven to volume 11. That's 711, home of the Slurpee. <laughs> um and that's going to mean we're covering chapters 23 to 69. Nice. Nice. Uh, so that's that's what's coming up on the next episode. It's uh, a bit more, but yeah, it kind of makes sense with how the story is paced, we think, going forward. So yeah, next time, chapter 23 to 69, and that'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Um, Look out for chapter 68. Oh, no, it's chapter 67, sorry, which is named Armor Goes on the Chest. And I think that's a lesson that maybe we can just leave everyone with uh, for this episode. Um, be sure, by the way, to check out uh, at Superculture Rev. Uh, follow that Twitter account for new episodes of the show and go to superculture.network to find all the websites associated with Superculture because that's why we're doing this. I mean, it's part of the reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. But until next time, see you in two weeks. And remember, Gareth, where does armor go? On the chest.